Romans chapter 6. After we read the scripture together, let's respond together by reading the answers of uh, Lord's Day 29. It's found on number 39, the back of the blue. We'll go there in just a minute. Beginning in verse 4 of Romans 6, uh, Romans 6, verse four, verses 4 through 11. Sorry about that. I made a mistake in what I gave to my faithful secretary this week. Romans 6, verses 4 through 11. Hear then God's holy word. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. So question, questions and answers 78 and 79 Let us respond together, starting with 78. We read then about our Lord's Supper. Are the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply God's sign and assurance so too the bread of the Lord's Supper is not changed into the actual body of Christ, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? Paul uses the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that as bread and wine nourish our temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood truly nourish our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood, as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins.
Our catechism lesson tonight has us focusing on the Lord's Supper, as we just saw, with Good Friday having just taken place and that special observance that we have at that time of the Lord's Supper. We have an opportunity to reflect on that and to make good use of those means of grace and to think about their meaning. It will not be uh, the focal point of my sermon tonight to talk about the nature of the elements, as we see in that first question and answer. We'll have opportunity to think about that once again uh, next week in the evening service. But I want to briefly mention what the Catechism teaches in relation to the bread and the cup. At the time of the Reformation, the Protestant uh, leaders of the church labored hard over this question. Uh, what, how do we describe the body and blood of Christ as it relates to the bread and the cup? After studying the scriptures, they came to determine that it is best to describe sacraments as signs and seals. They are signs because they point us to something. They are not the thing in themselves, the thing to which they point, but they point us to that thing. In baptism, the water is not the blood of Christ, but it points us to the blood of Christ. But they are something more than signs. They are also seals. They are seals of the gospel. And when something is a seal, particularly a seal of the gospel, it uh, confirms that what it symbolizes is true. So the sign and the seal work together. And it is in, in this aspect of the sacraments, the seal, that we see the, particularly the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit works within the sacraments, works within baptism and the Lord's Supper to confirm the truth of the gospel and to declare to us, as one of the things that the sacraments do, they declare to us that in Christ, as we trust in him by faith, we are given all of the benefits of salvation. We understand the sacraments that as we understand that they are signs and seals, we understand that we are not saying that the bread and the cup become literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But we are saying that the Spirit works within us to allow us to be nourished by the body and blood of Christ. And that is really happening in, this, in the supper as we eat and we drink in faith. Let us then turn to the text of God's word from this sixth chapter of Romans. And consider together this wonderfully important, challenging, multifaceted text. I uh, won't attempt to cover all of the themes in this passage tonight. I'll give special attention to what we read at the very end of our catechism answer that says this in answer 79. That says, all of Christ's suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. I'd like to focus on that phrase of the answer tonight. The central idea from this passage in Romans 6 is this. The gospel tells us that our redemption belongs to us, that it is ours just as if we had done it ourselves. That's how much it belongs to us. And by the gospel, we are transformed and strengthened for our pilgrim journey. Central idea, Romans 6 tonight. When a person receives a stem cell transplant, for various forms of cancer, the person who receives the donated stem cells, it is hoped, receives what is given to them without reacting to it negatively. Oftentimes, uh, the, the one who receives it can react negatively as if they are allergic to them. 
But if it takes, what happens is that the donor's stem cells begin to grow and multiply within the new body, and they begin to act and function just as they always had in their original owner's body. Fascinating process. And as these healthy stem stem cells grow and defeat the disease within the new body, that person goes on in life just as if all of those new cells are theirs. One of the fascinating things about this process is that after a while, the DNA in the blood of the person who received them actually becomes the DNA of the donor, not their own. These recipients live with this new DNA just as if it is theirs. And in the gospel, when we abide in Jesus Christ, we live just as if all of those things that he has done for us have been done by us. That is the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Not just for us, but it's as if they have actually been done by us. The sacraments are also such a beautiful picture of this because the water in baptism comes to touch our bodies. The bread in the cup of the Lord's Supper, is, it's not something that we just sit and we look at. We don't just sit and behold it, but we eat and we drink and we take it into our very bodies. And by this, God is assuring us that it is ours, that Christ is ours, that salvation is really and truly ours. Many Christians struggle throughout their life knowing whether or not these promises are for them. But if we struggle with assurance, we must make use of the things which God has given to us to build up our assurance. Therefore, we look to Christ in faith as we look to our baptism and as we make faithful use of the Lord's Supper. In using God's means, we are strengthened for the journey and we live in light of the gospel. The gospel tells us over and over again, to do at least three things, but three things that I'd like to name tonight. First, to consider our death. Second, to realize our new birth. And third, to practice resurrection life. To consider our death, to realize our new birth, and to practice resurrection life. Paul gives us a summary statement at the beginning of this passage in verse 4. He says this, We were therefore buried with him, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, or we may may live in newness of life. So we see in all of those things there is death, there is resurrection, and there is new creation or resurrection living. There's been great confusion, discussion about uh, why does Paul begin this passage speaking about baptism? But what we must notice, at the very least, is that Paul does not use baptism to point to anything that we have done. He uses baptism to point specifically to what Christ has done for us. Thus, baptism is not to point to us or to our actions or to anything that we have accomplished, but to point to something objective that has been accomplished for all of God's people. It does not point at our faith as much as it summons us to faith. No matter when you are baptized in your life, your baptism summons you to faith more than it points at your faith. In this way, baptism and the Lord's Supper are beautifully parallel, aren't they? They say 
They both say to us, here is what Christ has done for you. Here is what is yours by faith. Take it. Grab hold of it. Rest in Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is not a time to stand up and say, hey, look at what I have done. Look at how faithful I have been. I have been so obedient that I would never even think about letting these elements pass me by. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. It is a time to say that we have mere, what we have merely done is believe that Christ's blood covers all of our faults and that we try each and every day to follow him as best we can, which is at many times not very impressive. I know I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but keep coming back to Martin Luther's quote that uh, his, his last dying breath, he said, we are all poor beggars. This much is true. It's fascinating then as we continue to consider this passage in Romans. Fascinating that Paul speaks of Christ's death as if it is our death. Verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. And then later he, he says, Because anyone who has died as if all of us have already died. He speaks as if we have died the death that Christ has died for us. And this is precisely what we learn in the Lord's Supper, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says that the Lord's table is a fellowship. There is a Greek word that oftentimes we see uh, transported over to English, koinonia. You probably see that uh, koinonia ministries or things like that. Paul says it is a koinonia, a fellowship with the body of Christ. It's where the Holy Spirit brings us into union with Christ and what he has done in his death. Thus, we take the Lord's Supper, we eat it, we drink of it, and we are assured that all Christ has done belongs to us. More than that, we realize that God considers it as if it was us who did all of those, who went through all of those horrible yet beautiful things that Christ did on our behalf. Young people, students, I hope you have the experience one day, or maybe you've had it already, of having a class in school that is extremely difficult. You you take a look at at the first day, either by looking at the syllabus or listening to what the teacher is saying. You uh, understand that performing well in that class is going to be extremely hard. But you make a decision. You stare down the barrel of that class. You look into the eye of your teacher or your professor, and you will say, I'm up for the challenge. So you do all of the assignments. You work really, really hard. You study extra time, way harder than you normally do. And at the end of it all, you are rewarded with an A. If you need to know how to do this, go ask uh, Miss Michelle, uh, my wife. She was the world's master at working hard for A's and always getting them. We were married for a couple years in college and... uh, Every time she came home from a final or midterm and and, uh, was beside herself uh, thinking that she had done so poorly, I would just kind of try to reassure her, but I would be grinning the whole time because inevitably it would come back usually like a 99% or something like that. But the message of the Bible is that Jesus has done all of these things for you, that hard class putting in all of the extra work, all of those things that uh, you have to decide and each and every step of the way, he did it all for you. 
But imagine at the end of it all, you still get the credit as if you have gotten the A. All of that hard work, all of the studying, all of the labor, all of the toil, that is what salvation is. Jesus gets the A for you. It is on this basis that Paul calls us to do a couple of things. It's not just, okay, that is what Christ has done, but yet Paul goes along to say we are to do a couple of things. He says that just as he has considered us dead to sin, so we must consider ourselves dead to sin as well. God considers you dead to sin. You must consider yourself dead to sin. This is what he says in verse 11. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves this way. This takes time. You can't refashion your mind around a truth of considering the very nature of yourself or your existence and have it just happen automatically. It is not like we hear or we read these words and we say, okay, yeah, I'm considering myself dead to sin. I can move on. I fully grasp that I'm dead to sin and that I'm alive to God. Paul says, stop, think, consider, take time. I'm growing more and more convinced the more that I, I think about Uh, the pace of our world and and the pace at which things are changing, that uh, I'm becoming more and more convinced that we as Christians need to show one of the ways in which we are separate from the world is our willingness to set aside time to ponder the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ, to think about and to consider. Paul says this quickly, but he does not want us to pass over it quickly. To achieve the ability to think about yourselves, to consider yourselves dead to sin, takes time. It takes attending to God's grace. It takes allowing ourselves to fade away and for God to come to the forefront of who we are. I watch a show sometimes with my daughter. We let, we let her watch uh, a show usually before she goes to bed. And one of the characters on there is always doing foolish things and never uh, considering uh, all of the clues that he's gotten. He's trying to find things and he's never doing it right. And all of his friends, all the characters around him, they always say, you've got to stop and think it through. So now Sophia goes around the house and she says, stop and think it through. And that is what Paul is saying to us. We are no longer those who live in sin people in Christ. In Christ, we are those who have died to sin people. Stop. Think about who you are. Remember your death. Consider your death. Consider yourselves as dead to sin. It is just as if you have died the death that Christ has died. Not only that, we are to realize our new birth. Realize our new birth. In the tragic story of Narcissus, there's a man with a beautiful face And he catches a reflection of his face in the water. He is so taken with that reflection that he is unable to look away. Hunger, dehydration, starvation, none of these things are enough to pull him away from his own reflection. This reminds me of the the, the tragic reality in today's world of becoming obsessed with our self-image. When all we see is that, we miss out on all of our needs. We miss out on all of the needs of the people around us. But there is a proper gospel self-image that is not narcissistic, but it is Christ-centered. Even though we read that we have died, that God considers the death of Christ to be our own death, we know that we still possess bodily life. 
That's one of the things that's confusing about what Paul is saying here in Romans 6. Consider yourselves as having died with Christ. And we say, but nothing has changed about our existence. I'm still here, still in the same body that I had before. Paul gives us a a very famous, a very quotable uh, exposition on this idea in Galatians chapter 2. What does he say? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the faith, I now live, or the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and who gave himself for me. Paul says that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a life in union with the Savior. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says that God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is a grace-filled, Christ-centered existence. A self-image of saying, the life that I'm now living, I'm living in Christ. I'm living by faith in Him, and I'm living in union with Him. The Lord's Supper, again, provides us with a beautiful picture of this. For as we eat and drink of Christ's body and blood, we understand the picture that God is saying for us. He is saying, Christ is your nourishment. Christ is your food for the journey. He is how you get from point A to point B. He is how you get from cradle to grave in the spirits. In the story Pilgrim's Progress, there is a part of the story that I think just reflects the kind of sacrifice that Christ made, the kind of nourishment that he sets before us in the Lord's table, and the gratitude that we ought to reflect because of it. It says this, Now I saw in my dream that thus they sat together, talking together until supper was ready. So when they had made ready, they sat down to eat. And the table was furnished with fat things and with wine that was well refined. And all their talk at the table was about the Lord of the hill, as namely about what he had done and wherefore he did what he did and why he had built that house. And by what they said, I perceived that he had been a great warrior and had fought with and slain him that had the power of death, but not without great danger to himself, which made me love him the more. The characters in the story here are enjoying this vast banquet that has been laid before them. And as, they're, and as they're sharing in this together, they're talking about the wonder and, and the awe of what this Savior has done for them. The Lord of the hill who has built that house wherein they sit so that they can partake of this meal together. And he says, this is what made me love him all the more. Christ is our strength. He is our nourishment for the journey. If we are united to him in his death, we are united to him in his life, and we have been given new birth. We are no longer united to our old selves, who we were in Adam, but we are united by faith to the one who has been raised and the one who ever lives for us. There are a couple things that we take from Romans 6. There is an end in view and there is a result. The end in view that Paul talks about is that so that the body of sin might be done away with. This is why you are united to Christ. So that the body of sin might be done away with. And the result is that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's what he says in verse 6. In verse 7, Paul gives us the reason. The reason why all of this is true. Why should we no longer be enslaved to sin? Because the one who has died has been freed 
from sin. This is who you are in Christ. This is the new birth that you have had. If you have died, if you have been crucified with Christ, the only possible reality for you is that you have been raised, you have been born, you have been made new to new life in Jesus Christ. By faith, we are taken out of Adam, out of his representation. We are placed into a new reality of being in Christ. In Adam, we live in a sphere where sin and death reign. Our only enemy is God. But when we are transferred to the realm of Christ, sin no longer has any dominion or power over us. It's one of the beautiful things that the Heidelberg Catechism does for us. It stresses that not only does Christ take away the guilt of sin, he takes away the power of sin. Paul's saying, consider yourself this way, not only dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Consider your new birth. Realize your new birth. Those who are in Christ are not transferred to a world where they are not tempted to sin, or where where they do not feel the effects of sin. Surely we still do. But they are spiritually placed within a realm in which sin does not have dominion over you, in which sin does not have power over you. Evidently, Paul thinks that uh, if we consider ourselves this way, if we reflect on it, if we come to understand it more and more, we will experience more and more the power over sin, a victory over sin in our lives. This is absolutely vital to who we are in Christ, who we are spiritually. And therefore, we should see and understand how central it is. And when we see and we understand how central this is, considering our death, realizing our new birth, what happens is that we practice resurrection life. We practice resurrection life. Birth is uh, quick and easy, or so fathers think that birth is quick and easy. Maybe birth is just quick, right, if we asked asked the ladies amongst us. But growth is endlessly complex and difficult. Growing up is an endlessly complex process, and it is difficult. So how do we live out Paul's instructions here as we begin to live within this realm, within this sphere of resurrection, new creation, Christ-centered life? How do we do that while we still inhabit this body of death? It's been fascinating the past couple of weeks to uh, watch another uh, young baby come into this world. It's terrifying, humbling, awe-inspiring. Each moment of the day and, uh, and night. But one of the things that is so interesting is how much new babies grow. They can gain uh, a pound within uh, a time window of about less than a week. And what does a new baby do to grow? How does a new baby grow? Almost nothing, right? Almost nothing. A new baby is being nourished by uh, her mom and can only grow according to what she is given. Paul talks about growing up in Christ in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, that he wants everyone to reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and to become mature. That's what he wants for each Christian, to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Paul wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. 
But he uses this picture, and isn't it an interesting analogy or an interesting metaphor that he draws for us, growing up? How can one cause herself to grow? We live in a world that is fueled by competitive ambition. To be passive is almost thought to be blasphemy in the economy of commerce. You get ahead by making yourself get ahead. But this is opposite of the Christian life. The Christian life is centered around the idea of grace. It is one of growing up into maturity on the food of God's grace, on the nourishment of what he provides for us. Just like a new baby that cannot cause herself to grow, so we grow on the grace that God gives to us. When we live in Christ, when we consider our death, when we realize our new birth, and when we practice resurrection, we do all of these things by passively participating in the activity of God in Christ for us. The Christian life is about willingly laying aside your own efforts and coming to the waters of God's grace. Reading his word, praying, attending to the means of grace. We must abandon the shores of ourselves and we must plunge ourselves deeply and fully into the grace of God. But as we said earlier, it's hard to to embody this kind of mentality. It's hard to teach yourself how to do this. We must battle the fleshly desire to think that it is our own doing that makes us grow. Really, most of our own effort is about teaching ourselves to abandon everything within ourselves. We must battle ourselves to make ourselves understand that we have died and that the old man is dead. This is how victory over sin happens in our lives. We must plunge ourselves into the waters of God's grace. If you feel or you pass your hands through water, it would be obvious to anyone that it would never hold a person up. You could never float in water if you just passed your hands through it, or you wouldn't think so. And yet, if you get into the water and you don't do anything, it holds you up. If you relax and let it, you will float. Ephesians 2, chapter 10, tells us that we are God's workmanship. That word for workmanship is, is like we are his, his work, his projects. He is a craftsman, and he is crafting us. The body of sin is a result of our efforts. But being set free from sin and living unto righteousness, that is God's work of grace. That, it, that is what it means to immerse yourself in God's grace. Just as in the Lord's Supper we are passive, we are receiving God's grace, we are taking it into ourselves and putting it into our very bodies. Just as in that picture, let us stop, let us learn to stop, to consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. God looks down upon us and he sees his Son. He sees the merit of his son. He sees Christ's Christ's death and resurrection in us. God is holding out his grace to us and he is saying that he wants to strengthen us for the journey. So may we let him do that for us and in us this evening. Let's pray. Great God, Heavenly Father, May we learn to 
throw aside everything that we find within ourselves. May you empower us by your spirit through your grace to glorify you. May you give us victory over the body of death, the body of sin. Help us to consider our death in Christ, our life in him, and then give us strength, courage, to practice resurrection each and every day of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.